Thanks for tuning into the Refuge Church Sermon Podcast. It's our prayer that the Spirit would use God's Word to stir your affections for Christ during this time. While we're glad to provide this online content, please remember that it's not intended to replace commitment and connection within a local church family. Now, here's this week's message. Good morning. I'm Eric, one of the elders and pastors here. It's still really far away. Alright, we've been in a series in Colossians looking at uh, life as the church, and so we're going to continue that this morning, so if you want to uh, turn or click to Colossians chapter 3, Colossians chapter 3, we're going to be starting in verse 12, um, reading that passage. So Colossians 3, starting in verse 12, we're going to go through... Verse 17, it says this, Put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all of these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. This is the word of the Lord. Respond to Thanks to All right. So, one of the things I think is funny, uh, kind of pops up every once in a while online, is uh, articles that talk about words that originate in other cultures or language that we don't have, or concepts that originate in other cultures or languages that we don't have in English. Uh, I just think it's interesting to see what other people think is important enough to assign a word to that we haven't done for some reason. So here's a couple of funny things I've found. Or a couple of <coughs> the content, drowsy feeling that afflicts you after you indulge in a large meal, the Italians, of course, have the word abiocco. That means I'm ready for a nap because I just ate a lot, okay? <laughs> so here, this one is interesting. When babies or animals are so cute, like tiny little baby kittens and ducklings, those things, so cute that you can't help but have a sudden urge to squeeze them. That's the Phil- the Philippine word, magigio, magigio. You just want to get in their face and squeeze them. When you feel like eating one, feel that eating one more bite of a particularly rich food or dessert could make you throw up. You're at your limit. That's the Malaysian word, yala. Yala. Just throw the fork on the table and yala. Here's one. Feeling heavily uncomfortable watching somebody else screw up. <laughs> it's kind of like sympathetic embarrassment. Or that feeling of, oh, I can't watch this anymore. It's too painful. Like watching an episode of I Love Lucy for people that are old enough to remember. Friend, friend shaming. Friend shaming. Not like friend shaming, but friend shaming. That's a German word. The Danish word that means ale fright, the fear that you might run out of beer. <laughs> yeah. 
It also refers to the disappointment of traveling somewhere that doesn't have a bar or other place to acquire booze. <laughs> this is old freak. I think it's old freak. And finally, my favorite, God bless the Germans. They decided we need a word that means the face that looks like it needs a fist. <laughs> this guy needs to get punched in the face. So it's the simple word of, let me get it, Backpfeifengesiegt. Backpfeifengesiegt. I am committed to using this word from now on, now that I've done it. So why am I telling you all that? We have a problem in America, and the problem is you. Specifically the word you, which can be both singular and plural when we say it and when we write it. So that becomes difficult when you're reading, especially in the Bible, are we talking, are you talking to me? Or are you talking to all of us? Thankfully, a group of scholars got together and figured out a way to help clear up this communication and came up with the word y'all. <laughs> right? So y'all means two or more people. That's different than you, which could be singular. And just to be abundantly clear, there are times when you want to make sure that it definitely includes everyone, and that is to use the phrase, all y'all. <laughs> Let's make sure that everybody's included. Okay? So that's going to be important today as we look in this passage. We've been in a sermon series, like I said, called Life as the Church. Paul, the writer of this letter, is in prison, and he's writing to the Colossian church uh, to encourage them in what it looks like to be the church. As we've seen, this letter focuses heavily on who Jesus is and what he has done for his people. Paul is writing and warring against there were those in the church who were pursuing higher wisdom or secret knowledge or other things above and beyond the understanding of Jesus' completed work. The Colossians are reminded that they have been brought into the kingdom of Jesus and are now under his rule as Lord. In verse 1, chapter 1, verse 21, it says, And you, or actually, and y'all, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, he has now reconciled. He's talking about all of them as a church, as a group, individuals and as a community. Darden spoke last week about putting off the old self, or putting to death the things that no longer fit us as followers of Jesus. And then today, we get to the second half of that passage, where Christians are called to cultivate and manifest the qualities which are characteristic of the new self, is what the words Paul uses, putting on the these characteristics, as we just read through them, they should sound familiar, I hope, as their qualities displayed by God himself in the Old Testament and Jesus in his life and ministry. In our Western individualistic society, it's easy to focus only on me and to forget about the we. This passage, and really all of the letter of the Colossians, is written to the church, and the yous are primarily plural. I would venture to say that most of us, when we read the passage, either for today or for the whole letter, read it and think, I need to be more patient. I need to be more compassionate. And that's what this letter is saying to me. That is partially true, but it's woefully incomplete. So instead, we want to look at a picture today of what the church is supposed to look like together as well. So we'll start where Paul starts. He starts, as always, with who we are. He says in verse 12 that you're God's chosen ones, 
holy and beloved. It's very easy, I think, especially in a passage like this or the one from last week, to just skip to the list. Just tell me what i got to do. But Paul doesn't start there. He never starts there. God has formed a people, starting in the Old Testament with Abraham, to build a nation, and then setting them aside to make them special. First, he rescues them from slavery out of Egypt, and then he calls them to be his people, setting them apart and declaring them holy. Previously, in the Old Testament, God chose people of one nation to bless and then be a blessing. But now God elects people of all tribes and nations to be part of His kingdom. The new self, as Paul's words, the Christian community formed by and in Christ, transcends the boundaries of religious background, ethnicity, and social status. It doesn't mean that these things go away, but they are no longer the primary part of our identity, and they no longer separate us as believers. We have a fundamental identity in Christ and in the people of Christ to whom we belong. This new identity, while it's given to us in Jesus, must also be worked out in practice. So last week we heard about tearing down the old self. We're called to tear down the barriers to this new identity that are part of the new self. The good news is we have the privilege of belonging to the people of God. Rooted in this history of who God is and what He is doing. Paul uses the word chosen. This echoes all of the passages from the Old Testament, like Deuteronomy 7. Uh, Deuteronomy chapter 7. Uh, Moses is speaking on behalf of, of God to the people. For you are people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for His treasured possession out of all the people that are on the face of the earth. It's not because you are greater in number than any other people that he set his love on you. For you are the fewest of all peoples. But it's because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers. Chosen. We're a chosen people. It also says that we're a holy people. What is holy? This means set apart. A lot of times we think of the word meaning perfect, but it's something that means something is set apart. To be truly separate and unique. We sang a song this morning, Holy, Holy, Holy. That we describe God as three times holy. That He is completely other. He's not part of His creation. That He is great and separate from it. In Leviticus chapter 11, uh, God says, For I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves therefore, and be holy. For I am holy. For I am the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. He's not saying be perfect. He's saying I want to set you aside to be an example, to be separate. This is a reminder to the Colossians of who they are, chosen and holy. And by extension, who we now are, we are chosen and holy. We who are in Christ are now grafted into this people and called to respond to Him in obedience. Holy and beloved. Listen to those words. These are exalted titles. We don't just call everybody that. You may call your spouse beloved. But this is who we are called. These titles have been given to us, holy and beloved, because of Jesus. So then what does it look like to be God's chosen ones? To be His people? 
There's a list of things to put on. Paul says, put on compassion. Starting in verse 12. This is one of the words, and you'll hear this over and over. This is one of the words that God uses to describe himself when he reveals himself to Moses in Exodus chapter 34, 6. He says, I am the Lord. He says, I am compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, and overflowing in loyal love and faithfulness. And you'll hear some of those other attributes in a minute. Compassion is a response from deep inside, the center of our affections. When we're moved out to action out of a deep emotional connection. This is also the same root word that Jesus talked about when Jesus has compassion on those around him. And he has compassion on the Israelites that don't that are like sheep without a shepherd. We're called as a church to have compassion. We're called to have kindness. A quality that God himself against demonstrates in concrete actions. God rescues his people from Egypt because of his kindness. He brings them into the, into the desert but provides food and water because of his kindness. It's also kindness is included in the fruit of the Spirit that Paul writes in the, to the Galatians. Psalm says, taste and see that the Lord is kind. It can also be translated good. In the Psalms and Prophets, we see that even in the face of the people's sin, that God is kind and provides for them. Jesus himself teaches kindness to the ungrateful and the ungenerous. He says in Luke chapter 6, But love your enemies and do good with kindness. And lend, expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High. For he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. We're called to be kind. It says put on humility. That Jesus was described as being gentle and lowly in heart or humble. Now back at this time, to be humble was not a desirable attribute. It's the same root word that we see used earlier in chapter 2 in verses 18 and 23 where they have the word asceticism, which is, uh, it's used in a negative sense. And asceticism is the idea of punishing yourself or removing things from yourself to increase your righteousness. But here... This is a positive. It's the grace of humility. So what's the difference? If we look in the Old Testament, at the prophets, and we see God acting in history, that He's always working to bring down the proud and arrogant and to exalt the lowly. Mary, after the angel visits her and says, you're going to be the, you're going to be the mother of the Messiah. She says this, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he's looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown great strength with his arm. And he has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. In the New Testament, Humility describes a lowliness with which the church is to serve Christ and each other. If you read Philippians 2, it's perhaps the most beautiful description of the humility of Jesus, who took on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and eventually died on our behalf. A beautiful chapter highlighting the humility of Jesus. As Christians, as the church, as the new self, 
We are to esteem others better than ourselves and be concerned about other, the welfare of others. We're to put on humility. We're to put on gentleness or meekness. This is also one of the fruits of the Spirit. Moses, in the Old Testament we see, is described as being meek. He was not giving way to rage after all of the things that the people did to rebel against him and against God. But instead, he interceded to God for others. A stronger theme in the Old Testament, Zechariah the prophet described the Messiah who would come as meek or humble. He says in chapter 9, Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And then in the New Testament, we see Jesus fulfilling that particular, that specific prophecy as he rode into Jerusalem. The word is also rendered meekness, such as in the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus said, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Jesus was gentle, but capable of righteous indignation or appropriate anger when it was necessary. This is the messianic quality that Jesus fulfills, that he was bringing salvation without force. Seems bizarre to me. For us, this is not to be confused with weakness, but having a greater concern for others. And here it is a willingness to waive my own rights for the benefit of others. We're called to put on gentleness or meekness. And finally, patience. Again, this is a fruit of the Spirit, and it's also an attribute that God uses to describe himself in that passage from Exodus 34. That God is slow to anger, that he is patient, or a word that's a little bit scary, long-suffering. That God is the one who is patient towards his people throughout all the years of history. And we see this continue in and through the Old Testament. So compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience... Does anyone disagree that these are good qualities? I would save it for another time, but I think we only know them as good because of our Christian worldview. But we'll talk about that in a time. But these five graces or qualities are how we are to be clothed and behaved in our dealings with one another as part of the body. What's the problem with this list of things to put on? First of all, all of these things are costly. We have to give up something to seek out to exhibit these qualities, right? I could be more powerful, I could find greater approval, I could be more comfortable, and I could have more control if I don't do those things. They also, perhaps more critically, represent an internal change, right? It's impossible for me to tell you, just go be more compassionate. Okay. Or just be humble. Okay. My high school uh, comp, English comp teacher would beat us over the head if we used the word just in front of something. Because it makes it less significant. If I said, just go, you just, I just need to be humble or I just need to be compassionate. That, that degrades the meaning of the word compassionate. But regardless, I still can't do these things. They, can, they do not come naturally to us in our fallen state. But instead, they're the outworking of the Holy Spirit that's within us. So, what do we do? The good news is Paul keeps writing. So now he starts getting into the practical. He's talking a little bit about this is what the church should look like. 
what we put on. He gets into practical. He uses imperatives here, which is, do this. He says in verse 13, that we should bear with and forgive. Do these things to each other. There's a mutual forbearance and a mutual forgiveness. Bearing with. This is, a, I think, kind of a low-level, grudging willingness to put up with difficult circumstances or difficult people. All right. So when somebody comes in as part of the church and they are magigil, or you just want to squeeze them and be, be kind to them and hug them, or they're back fighting this year. And you just want to punch them in the face. Sometimes you just have to put up with folks. It's the first and necessary step to community. I think at a bare minimum of Clint Eastwood in the movie Grand Torino, where he spends a lot of time on the lawn just going. <laughs> Every irritating thing. Bearing with one another is an essential baby step into community. But then, he writes to the Colossians and says, we are to forgive. This is much, much deeper. It's an act of grace, something that's freely offered and often not deserved. Jesus established, Jesus himself establishes both the pattern and the possibility of forgiveness. So we see that Jesus in his teaching encourages forgiveness without any record keeping. The famous 70 times 7 uh, passage where they say how many times should I forgive my brother and he said 70 times 7 times they used to keep a record of wrongs an actual written list to say this person I've forgiven this many times and he blows that out of the water and we say that we don't do that but what's the phrase fool me once shame on you fool me twice shame on me right that gets into the realm of forgiveness how many times will I forgive someone this forgiveness that we're called to as the church is to be continuous, a rich and gracious act without measure. Paul says, you have, you've been forgiven much, so therefore be prepared to forgive others much. It's part of Jesus' prayer, what we call the Lord's Prayer, where he says, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. We're called to practice this, not as a way to earn something from God, but as a sign that our hearts have been softened by this forgiveness. We're called to forgive one another generously. We can still have complaints against one another, but repentance and forgiveness are called for as the new self, as the people of God. So what's the motive of this practice of forgiveness? The action of the Lord who has first forgiven us. When we see what Christ has done for us, the beauty of His sacrifice on the cross for our forgiveness, then this becomes the paradigm for the lifestyle to which we can form as believers and that we can practice forgiving one another, one another because we have been forgiven much. This is the gospel at work in us or in all of us, all y'all. We can forgive much because we have been forgiven much. We're called to forgive as a practice, something that we do. We practice forgiveness, and then in verse 14, we put on love. 
Well, as with all the poets and philosophers throughout, throughout the ages, what is love? Or what does it look like here to put on love? Love here, we see, is the crowning grace that the new people must put on. It's not like a separate super attribute that goes with the previous five. It's the binding or unifying force that brings everything together. Not like the force, the force, but like a binding. Okay. Um, love is an active expression of justifying faith. We see in Galatians 5, 6. Let me say that again and then unpack it a tiny bit. Love is the active expression of justifying faith. Love, working itself out, shows that faith is working itself in, into the core of our being. It's the primary fruit of the Spirit that we see in Galatians chapter 5. Paul writes this, he says in Romans, For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, and therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. Jesus says the greatest commandment is to love God, and the second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. Love reflects the character of Christ in action. In the new self, in the new people of God, there is a mutual love that binds us together, wanting for the good of one another. Love binds us together, producing perfection, as Paul writes. Perfect harmony are the words that he uses. Now, to be clear, he's not talking about achieving personal perfection, that I just need to do all these things a little bit more, and then I will be perfect. It's not something we reach individually. But as Christians in fellowship forgive and show love to one another, Christ is being made known, and we are being made perfect together. So we practice forgiveness. We put on love, which leads to us putting on love. And then... We're exhorted, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. The heart in this language is the center of your personality, the center of your will, your emotion, your thoughts, and your affections, the center of your being, of who you are. And it says, let the peace of Christ rule here. Peace maintains the unity of the spirit in the body, as Paul writes to the Ephesians. The peace of Christ must be accepted as the arbitrator in the body of Christ. We strive for peace. If the members of the body of Christ are subject to Him, if you've been reconciled to Christ, then the peace He imparts must regulate our relationships with one another. We don't, we don't, um, we don't want to be caught up in conflict or strife, but press for peace, letting it rule in our hearts. As you can see, it has to flow out of forgiveness and love. He says, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. That's another you. That means all y'all's hearts. Christ's body is the organism. This is where we get into, I think, um, some of the beauty of what we see here in the next verse. Christ's body is what the church is referred to. This organism, the church is depicted as being the place of peace. We're supposed to let the peace of Christ rule in us individually, yes. But the peace of Christ should reign here among us so that as people enter 
in, they would stand in awe to say, this is a place of peace. We're called to be thankful as the peace of Christ rules in us. Now, thankfulness here is a response of gratitude to the grace of God. Uh, Romans says it should be the response of all humanity just because we have a creator. And he writes this as he's talking about those who do not know God. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile, futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. But how much more for those who have received the surpassing gift of forgiveness should we be thankful? And the thankfulness here, the words, the root words that some very smart people have dug up, is not simply an attitude of like, I'm generally dispositioned to be thankful today because I'm feeling nice, it's, there's a nice breeze, and it's sunny outside. But it's gratitude from deep down that finds an outward expression. Thankfulness. An outward expression of thanksgiving. And there's some things listed here as responses of how, those, how it can express itself. But this, this isn't an exhaustive list. It's not just singing, teaching, or speaking to one another. But in all circumstances, as we see in Thessalonians, as we express what God has graciously done in His Son, other Christians are encouraged to praise Him also. It's contagious. This is part of the reason that we gather together, whether it's on Sunday mornings or small groups or other times throughout the week. We gather together and express our thankfulness for who God is and what He has done. <coughs> thankfulness. And then we're exhorted to, to this. Let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. This is, again, there's a you there. It's both individual and communal, but it's primarily communal as the church. Let the Word of Christ dwell in all y'all richly or dwell among you. This is not something that we just hold on to as individuals with our clenched fists, but it's something dynamic and alive that moves among us. This is the word of truth, or the gospel, centered on Christ, which came to the Colossians and has come to us. Jesus is described as the word of God in John chapter 1. And the Holy Spirit is the one that dwells in us Ever since Pentecost, he's been sent to dwell in us. So, the church is described as the body of Christ. He dwells in our church as a whole. The word of Christ dwelling in us richly. This is way more than just practicing the spiritual practice of study. Although that's important too. How do we let the word of Christ dwell here? Our gatherings, when we meet together, should be saturated both with his teachings and with his example in his life, death, and resurrection. How does the word of Christ dwell richly? The gospel itself is to have its great and glorious way in us when we come, when we come together, letting its authority rule over us, changing us. We listen to it. We let it speak as the authority. Then we understand it and we apply it to our daily life. And as we seek out the good of others in the body, in love, we find opportunities to apply it to one another as we forgive and love. 
And then, as the Word dwells in us, collectively, richly, we instruct one another with wisdom, not out of a prideful arrogance or a superiority where some people hold a secret knowledge or something that's out of reach. Paul has already addressed this in the letter to say, those things are not worth chasing after. He says in chapter 2, verse 3, that it's in Christ that all of the treasure of wisdom and knowledge have been stored up. Let the word of Christ dwell in all y'all richly. We're getting close to the end. He talks about singing there in that verse, in this section. Singing was a means of edification and instruction in addition to praising God. That's one of the things I like about refuge as well is we don't just sing uh, frivolous songs. We're singing songs about who God is and what He has done. Uh, the way I like to think about it is to let the words tell the truth and let the music tell us how we should feel about the truth. Um, that's one of the many ways that the Word of Christ can dwell in us richly. This is the presence of Jesus dwelling in our midst. That's the thing that has stuck with me all week here. Is what does that mean for the word, for the presence of Jesus to dwell in us? I get so focused on me of what should I be doing? How should I be responding? And yet, looking around to see how is the presence of Jesus dwelling in us? How are we exhibiting these attributes? As we forgive, as we love, as we worship, as we sing, as we teach, all of these things. So in closing, as we walk through those things, how do we put on a new self? If we can't affect these changes on our own, what do we do? First, we have to remember the gospel. This is the exhortation that we've heard uh, that comes to people who have been reconciled to God by Jesus. We don't get away from it. It's the thing that speaks to us over and over again. Of who God is, who we are, and what He has done for us in Christ Jesus. It speaks to all areas of life. Our value and worth, the value and worth of each other, the value and worth of creation. And from there, as we are transformed, we're called to practice forgiving one another. Just as Christ has forgiven us. And this forgiveness leads to a love for one another. And our God. What does it feel like when you've been forgiven much by someone? As that relationship develops, you develop a love for that person and ultimately for God who has, done, who has forgiven us the most. We let the peace of Christ rule in us. We become a people of peace. Not just individuals of peace, but people who seek peace. We let the word of Christ dwell in us richly. We speak the truth to our broken hearts and broken minds. I love being able to hear people sing as we sing words, as I look across the congregation to see somebody that I respect and I know singing words of truth. When I see someone that's hurting or broken singing words of truth and comfort, this is a beautiful picture of what we can, what we can and what we should be doing for one another as we participate together. And we respond in active thankfulness. We actively express our gratitude to one another and ultimately to God for what He has done for us in Christ. And finally, in summary, Paul just puts a blanket over the whole thing. 
and says, whatever you do, whatever you do. He says, this is not a detailed code of rules for the Christian life, okay? Rules are something that are suited to a period of immaturity when you're under a guardian. Like kids, when we say, don't play in the street. Don't go in the street. Now, when it's the 4th of July, you go shoot fireworks in the street. So aren't you breaking the rule? But as you become mature, you can understand the reason why behind the rule. Growing in maturity means knowing the Father. It means loving the things that He loves and acting out the things, acting out in ways that He has called us to act. Every activity that we do is to be done in obedience to the Lord and accompanied by thanks to God through Him. This is whole life obedience together. In becoming a Christian, when we call upon Jesus as Lord, we come under His good authority. Joel preached about that a few weeks ago. Beautiful. We have a good God who is the authority over us. And we're called to respond in love and faithfulness. And then, thanksgiving can be addressed to God through Christ, our mediator. He has opened up the way to the Father's presence for us because of His life, death, and resurrection. So in closing, as we practice these things together, as we practice forgiveness, as we practice love, as we practice being a people of peace, as we practice letting the word of Christ dwell in all of us richly, the Spirit of God will work in us to manifest His character. He will change us. He will work in us and ultimately through us in the world to create the new self or the body of Christ. Let's pray together. God, thank you for this beautiful day. Thank you for this opportunity to gather in the summer, in the shade, with the breeze in your creation. Thank you for the reminder that you are good and that you are kind to us. Thank you for your son, Jesus, who has given us not only the perfect example in his life on earth, but that he has fully lived out and put on display who you have called us to be, what we were, what we were created to be, that he was obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross, and yet you have raised him from the dead to show that you have power over sin and over death, and that you are starting a new people, that you're calling people to yourself by the power of your spirit. So we thank you for calling us. God, I pray that as we practice these things, that we've just talked about. That we, that you would build in us compassionate hearts for one another and for the world. That you would help us to be kind to one another and even to ourselves. That you would instill in us a deep sense of humility. That we would be able to give up our rights for the sake of others. I pray that you would help us to be meek as we seek to love the lowly and recognize that that's who we are when you have rescued us. And that you would, I hate to ask for it, but give us patience, that you would give us patient hearts that are willing to endure to the end by your power and by your spirit and for your grace, because of your grace. I pray that you would work in this body of Christ, in this people, that you would help us together to put on the new self, 
so that you may be glorified in this place, in this community, and in the world. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Building our identity in Christ for the sake of the world. That's the mission of Refuge Church. For more information, visit us online at seekrefuge.net.